Tonight's scripture will be Psalm 1. Once you have arrived there, if you could stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 1 in its entirety. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, church, I'm delighted uh, on this Sunday evening to start off our summer in the Psalms with you. Uh, For those of you who are confused why we're in the Psalms, Uh, Don't worry, we have not abandoned Luke uh, at the pinnacle of the book. We are simply taking a couple weeks hiatus, uh, and we will be back shortly. But in lieu of our regularly scheduled programming, uh, we are going to be doing our summer in the Psalms, um, as we do every year. I forget when we exactly started it uh, as a church. Uh, But this is a time for us to, uh, one, take a break from uh, different genres that we've been in. Uh, The Gospel of Luke we've been going through for a number of years now. And so it, it gives us opportunity to get a different flavor from Scripture. And also, uh, more than any other book in in the Bible, the Psalms gives us language for how you and I ought to relate to God devotionally. So whereas Paul, when he writes his letters, does so to prove doctrine to us, to give us uh, things to believe and argues against false beliefs, uh, and the historical books gives us claims about how history unfolded and a theological interpretation for why it is that Israel fell or why it is that Babylon fell, the Psalms gives us a look at how we ought to relate to God from the heart. How ought we to relate to God devotionally? It is the, the prayer book of the Bible. It is the song book of the Bible. Uh, it is the song book of the Christian. And so it is good for us to study and to learn these truths uh, so that we might be able to uh, benefit from them uh, as, as believers in Christ. Um, so to start off, uh, there's probably at least two things I want to try to accomplish in our time together this evening. Uh, part one will be a general introduction to the Psalms and how they function. That'll kind of serve as an introduction to our whole series in the Psalms for this summer. Uh, And then part two will be taking that and applying it to specifically Psalm 1 and asking the question, what does it teach us and how does it shape our hearts and our devotion towards God? Broadly, uh, we're going to start with the first, first one first and ask the question, how are the Psalms different than every other book of the Bible? Or really, are they different than any other book? Now, if you have uh, a modern English translation, and I'm looking out and I'm seeing some of you have those modern translations, uh, if you were to just take your finger in the book of Psalms and flip uh, backward to, let's say, Kings or any of the narrative portions of Scripture, you'd notice at least an initial observation, which is that the Psalms are set into uh, poetic stanzas as opposed to prose, right? If you go to Genesis, you're going to see that uh, as big as the margins are, that's where the words go, right? It's, It's narrative stories that it's telling you. And there are some sections of the Bible that have these little breakout chunks. Even parts of Genesis will have that, that what we would call poetry. The Psalms, the whole thing, is set into that poetry. And so that cues you in as an English reader 
that this is different or should be read differently than the other sections of your Bible. And this is not the only place where poetry occurs in the scriptures, but it is the poetry book of the scriptures. It's the, the biggest book of the Bible and subsequently the biggest collection of poetry in all of scripture. And that clues us into a number of things, but we, we could, let's say, use our understanding of English poetry to at least get part of the way there. Poetry uh, does something different than, let's say, a legal argument, right? In, in a legal argument, someone's proving their case, arguing for a verdict, uh, making compelling persuasive arguments, right? Perhaps you've been in English class and you've been told you have to write a persuasive essay on a certain topic. And so you pick your topic and your goal the whole time is to dispel all the things against your truth claim and argue for your truth claim, right? That's the purpose of a persuasive argument. Poetry does something different. It's, it's, it shows us the beauty of the truth that is being considered. It shows us via picture, uh, via all kinds of beautiful uh, language uh, maneuvers, that what's being considered here is not just true, but also that it's lovely, also that it's a beautiful thing to delight in, also that it, it should inspire worship within us, not just uh, intellectual assent. So poetry does something different. And if you think about uh, even songs that you enjoy, um, the songs shouldn't just tell you things that you believe. Uh, they, they do that in part. But the best songs do something different. They actually rise your affections to agreeing with and even singing along with the truths that are being proclaimed. Uh, uh, a funny category of music uh, in, in our lifetime is, is like the breakup song, which, which captures the, let's say, all of the emotional truth and all the experiential truth that someone might have gone through in a breakup. Now, most breakup songs are more extreme highs and lows of emotions than any one of us would ever experience if we were in that kind of a situation. But the reason we can sing to songs like that or the reason we can echo those lyrics is not because, well, we understand the full poetic beauty of it in its entirety by our own experience, but it echoes our experience. It, it speaks at least partially to the truth of what we have experienced in our lives. And in that, we can agree with what it's saying and then sing along with it. Now, the difference between what's contained in the Psalter and any one of our modern songs that might give us words to sing in a certain moment is the words you're going to sing in whatever other song you're singing, they're going to be dependent on the wisdom and the intellectual inspiration and even, let's say, the truth of whoever wrote the song. Right? Their experiences, their mileage may vary. You might have listened to songs in your lifetime that you can think of and you can say, I don't agree with that worldview. I don't agree with anything this person's saying. That's just all wrong all over the place. And you can do that because it's, it's just your worldview versus their worldview. There's nothing really much more to it than that. But in the Psalms, we have something different going on. The Psalms will inspire in us beauty, and, and thus we sing uh, the Psalms and we, and we pray them. But also it'll do something more, which is that at moments where we are most prone to not want to believe the truths that are in it, we actually can rely or rest on the fact that it's actually the very word of God which is being proclaimed to us as true. It is not as though we can dismiss the opinions of the Psalms and say, well, that's just this Psalter's interpretation of the, the matter at hand, particularly if you think about Psalms that deal with hard issues like suffering and, and the pain of the human experience. And you might say, well, this, this Psalmist is speaking from their own worldview in their own time, in their own place. Uh, it's their opinion. And we would have to say, no, actually the Psalms does something a little bit more than just opinion sharing. It's, it's sharing this with, with us a biblical worldview through the means of of poetry. Now you might uh, be at least agree with me in part that it's poetry by the way that it's set out in your English Bible, but 
There's one more piece that we need to put into place to understand how it's poetry, which is that it's not English poetry, and it's not even a derivation of English poetry, meaning it's not really closely related. It's Hebrew poetry. It's older than English poetry. And that's not a cop-out to say, you have to trust me that it's poetry, even if it doesn't really look like it, right? It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have things like that going on. Uh, Hebrew poets uh, would rhyme, I think, in a far more sophisticated matter than English poets would. They rhyme by echoing ideas, contrasting ideas, and they have actually a pretty sophisticated, what we would call a meter pattern. For those of you who don't know music, that just means that the stanzas kind of match up as you're, as you're singing along to them or as you're reading them out loud. And you'll even notice that verses will take large ideas and shrink them down into a couple of words, then echo that idea, then echo it again. And they'll take these massive, complex ideas in scripture and whittle it down to a small statement. For instance, how all of Genesis argues that the one who's under God's promise is under a beneficial state, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Joseph, right? We look at it, their whole lives. Genesis takes a whole narrative to tell us what Psalm 1 tells us in verse 1. Blessed is the man who follows God's way, right? You see the, the tightness of what's going on in Psalm 1 as opposed to what a narrative takes a long time to establish. Now, there's one thing that I want to do to try to bridge the gap between the poetry of the Psalms and the poetry that you're reading in your English Bible, and that is to, to do a bridge step which is to read the Psalms as they've been translated into English poetry. Now, these are uh, Psalters that English translators will take. They'll translate from the Hebrew, and they'll try to say, how can I make this rhyme in English to make the ideas echo? Now, this is a little bit older English than what you and I are used to in our modern vernacular. But just hear a couple of verses from how the, how the words rhyme, and you'll begin to get the sense of the poetry that's at hand. I'm reading, once again, out of Psalm 1. The poet writes, O greatly blessed is the man who walketh not astray in the counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinner's way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but placeth his delight upon God's law and meditates on his law day and night. He shall be like a tree that grows set by the waterside, which in its season yields its fruit and green its leaves abide. And all he does shall prosper well, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff which by the wind is driven to and fro. You hear a little bit of the, the rhyme there going on, and that takes obviously a great deal of skill to be able to do something like that. But the idea is that the Psalms are poems, and so in some sense we should treat them like poems, right? When we're reading them, we shouldn't read them like narrative where you just blitz through a Psalm and you read 10 of them in a morning. But you could do that with Genesis, and you could actually pick up all the main ideas better than if you slowed down. But in the Psalms, you actually have to read slowly. You have to read like you would a poem. Now, poetry reading is probably not a skill that many of you practice anymore, unless you're forced to by an English teacher when you were growing up in, in grade school and high school. But, but poetry needs to be read slowly because the ideas in poetry are complex and dense, and so we have to chew through them slowly. So with that as a, as a broad introduction, uh, there's one more word to say on what the Psalms are and how they function. Uh, if you, as you're considering, how do I take what we're going to hear tonight in Psalm 1 and apply it to, to my life? It's not quite like Paul or quite like what Genesis will do. It's a little bit different. And I think Athanasius, the early church father, is helpful on this. He says it this way. Within it, the Psalter, are represented and portrayed in all of their great variety the movements of the human soul. Whereas in the Bible, you read only what the law commands, this, that, this thing or that thing to be done. You listen to the prophets and you learn about the Savior's coming. You turn to the historical books and you learn of the holy doings of the kings and all the actions of the holy men. 
But in the Psalter, besides all of these things, you learn about yourself. You learn your own heart, its weaknesses, its frailties. And how do you approach a sovereign God in light of the fact that you are a, a rather fragile human? How do you take the truths of Scripture to the Lord in prayer? So that is what the Psalms do for us. And now the question is, can we extract all of that out of Psalm 1 and hear how Psalm 1 gets to our hearts and teaches us about our own weaknesses? So to do that, we have to at least start with a question, a worldview question, which is, you might think about this in two different lanes. One, for those of you who are believers who would attest to follow Christ, consider it this way. Why is it that you obey God's word? And if you're a non-believer, you can think about it this way, or you're not sure. Why should you obey God's word? If you're thinking about the answers to those questions, if you're a Christian, you might have several answers that flutter to your mind, several answers to that question. Why, should you obey God? Why do you obey God's word? Because uh, my parents grew up telling me to do that. That can be part of the answer. Um, because I trust what his word says can be part of the answer. For believers, there's a multiplicity of answers, is there not? For why would you obey God's word? But at bottom, one of the things Psalm 1 is going to argue is that we don't just do it because God told us to do it, but actually we do it, and you can look at verse 2 for this, because it's our delight, it's our joy to obey the words of God. Our delight is in what he says, and, and henceforth we meditate on it and chew over it. Now, uh, this could backfire. I don't know. We'll see. If I was to ask you, church, what is the chief end of man, what would you say? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All right, not as bad as I thought it was going to go. <laughs> the chief end of man, what is it? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? We listen to his words and how he tells us we glorify him. But in the, in the aim of that confession is not just that we glorify God by slavishly doing what he requires of us, regardless of how we feel. Part of what the Westminster Confession says is we glorify God by enjoying him forever. We glorify God and we enjoy him. Our delight is in God, in his word, in obedience towards him. That's, that's the hope of a Christian. That's at least part of the answer. At bottom, we, we do these things, we obey God's word because it's our delight, it's our joy. Now, if you're asking the question differently, why should I obey God's word? Psalm 1 isn't going to answer all of the questions about the historical accuracy about the word of God. There's other places in scripture you can turn that will make those arguments. There's other books that have been written that will make those arguments. What Psalm 1 does is, if you're, a, if you're a non-believer, it at least makes you ponder this. Wouldn't it be good if this was true? Isn't this lovely? Isn't this beautiful? Why should you obey what God says? Maybe because it's better than the alternatives. That's what Psalm 1 contends, that, that the way of the blessed is better than the way of the wicked. The way of obedience to God is better than the way of disobedience towards God. The way of being constrained by what God's word says is better than the freedom that is offered elsewhere. This is what Psalm 1 contends. So with that worldview question in mind, let's hear the words of Psalm 1 as it contends for us the way of God's followers is good. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor keep in step with sinners, 
nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But rather, in the law of the Lord is his delight. And on this law, he meditates daily and nightly. The blessed man is described for us as one who does certain things and doesn't do other things. He, what he doesn't do is he doesn't listen to bad counsel. Now, so far, this person's been introduced as the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to bad advice. He doesn't run with the wrong crowd. He doesn't take advice uh, hoping to fit in with, with bad company. You've heard the, the phrase and the saying, bad company corrupts good morals, right? This is at least partially true in Psalm 1, right? That you don't associate with people who you don't want to become like. You don't hang around people who you don't want to bleed on you. And thus, the blessed man or the blessed person is described in these terms. They do not walk in counsel with, with, wicked, with the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, all of these are, we would say, these are rhymes. You see the ideas rhyming? Walking, counseling, they do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not stand in the way of sinners. They do not sit in the seat of scoffers, right? You, you hear the ideas rhyming there. And this is kind of a little bit of a, how, how this thing goes in life. If you start listening to what wicked people say, you start listening to their ideas, you hear their counsel, you hear their words, you hear what they say, that'll lead you to start taking steps in that direction, to living in light of what you hear and what you start to believe. And ultimately, you sit in their presence and company. You identify with these people. The, the righteous man, uh, he does not do any of these things. He doesn't, he doesn't listen to their advice. He doesn't take actions in their way. He doesn't take any steps down the wicked path, uh, nor does he identify at all with, with those who scoff after God. And this begs the question, if you're a believer or an unbeliever, where does your worldview, where does your counsel, where does your source of truth come from? If, if you listen to the news all the time, that is a counselor in your ear. Depending on what news source you listen to, you're getting different kinds of advice. How should you think about the events that are happening in the world? Who's to blame? What's the solution? That's a counselor. Now, you might think that's a good counselor or a bad counselor. All I'm saying is you have to at least acknowledge it's giving you advice. Who are your friends? You don't have to say at this point whether they're good counselors or bad counselors, but you have to acknowledge your friends do counsel you. They do give you advice. They do at least by active advice or passive tolerance of what you do tell you whether something is a good idea or a bad idea. What is the voices, what are the voices that you listen to on a regular basis? That could be a podcast, that could be books that you read, or that could be what source of news you intake, that could be who you talk to on a daily basis. And consider the fact that over time, those counsels will shape you, they will mold you, they will form you into the image of the total sum of all of those counsels put together. This is why uh, workplaces that are hostile uh, and by that I mean, you know, gossipy, they talk bad about each other, they talk bad about the boss. That's not something that you just fix overnight, because that's not something that was formed overnight. That is the sum total of one employee starts doing that, then another, then another, and all of a sudden, the sum total counsel of all these people together has led somewhere. And if you're in that workplace for very long, if you're not cognizantly resisting it, you will become a gossiper, a slanderer, someone who, who spreads all kinds of information that does not belong to you to spread. It's because you're taking counsel from those and they're shaping you into what they are like. So where is your source of counsel? Well, 
The blessed man doesn't take counsel from those who are wicked, those who are not worth taking counsel from. Rather, he takes counsel from God. Verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates daily and nightly. The law of God is the counselor for the righteous man, the blessed man. He doesn't take company with those who are sinners who scorn God. He takes company with the prophets, with the, with the, with the psalmists, with Moses, with Abraham. He takes his company there and gets their counsel. How should I act in righteousness today? How should I live my life in light of God being sovereign? The, the blessed man delights in and obeys and chews over meditating on the law of God. Now, the law of God that's, that's written there in Psalm 1, depending on what translation you have, it might say the instructions of the Lord, the word of the Lord. It's a shorthand for, and it contains the idea of, the, the, the written word of God, his instructions, his teachings. This is what the blessed man meditates on. And meditation is not the emptying of the mind and staring blankly into darkness. For a Hebrew, meditation is the active ingraining of something into their mind. It would actually be accompanied by like low muttering of the words over and over. So to meditate on the law of God, it would be literally to mutter it quietly to yourself so that you get the words in your head, so you are chewing it over, so you are reciting it, so that it shapes you and molds you, it counsels you. It tells you how you ought to act. And the word of God is a counselor to the believer. It is a counselor to the one who follows after God. It, it instructs us. It guides us. It teaches us. How many of you have been in a situation where you are faced between two choices, two paths, and you think, well, what does God's word say I should do in this moment? Not what's easiest, not what can I get away with, not what makes me the most money, but how should I act as a Christian? in this circumstance. And then maybe some verses come to mind. And it begins to shape how you think and how you interact. What should I do with my time throughout the week? What would God say you should do with your time throughout the week? And that's not then you empty your mind and think, well, God, speak to me and tell me what I should do. God tells you through the shaping of his word how you should conduct your time, how you should conduct your life. He speaks to us in his word, through his word, and would we listen by meditating on it, we would hear his voice as a constant stream of advice to us. He is a God who speaks still today, still through his word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So the, the righteous man takes counsel from what God says in his word. And not only does he listen to it, but he delights in it. He enjoys it. He likes what he hears. He likes time with God. He likes what he says. He reflects after having listened and says, that was good advice that was given. That was the right way to have acted. And you might say, well, what if you're at the place where you don't see God's word as being delightful or good? That's part of what it means to be shaped and molded over time by it. As you start to recognize the truth and the wisdom in it, which you might not have recognized at first. It's a little bit like if you're learning a, a new skill, let's say playing an instrument, and when you first sit down to play an instrument, you cannot appreciate good music from bad music. All you know is there's, there's sound being made. But over time, as your skills improve, and as you listen to better and better musicians and better and better music, over time what will happen is even as a student, you'll begin to recognize that was an excellent melody that was played there. 
That was, that was wonderful how those notes turned and, and maneuvered and shaped the course of the song. You begin to appreciate the, the quality of what's being given to you over time. That's a little bit what it's like to recognize the wisdom of God. At first, you hear it and you go, okay. And over time, you begin to think, that was good advice that was given in how to act. Or even as you're shaped by lived experience in the world, you think, God's advice consistently turns out right. And for other piece of advice, mileage may vary. You might have people who give good advice or bad advice in your life, but you can rest assured that they will at some point give a dud piece of advice to you because that's how humans are. We do not see into the future perfectly. But God does. He knows all of time, all of space, all of the world. And so he can give perfect, timeless, righteous counsel for how, to, how you ought to conduct yourself. So we listen to his law, but also we delight in his law. And I should note just a moment, uh, when it says the man is blessed who does this, this is echoing the idea that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who... The idea is it's describing one who is under the fortunate gaze of their God. It does not mean the person is perpetually happy living on cloud nine. It does not mean that the person is without any worries in the world, but they have a place to take their worries. They have a place to take their fears and anxieties. They can take it straight to God and rest in his sufficiency. They're a blessed person. They're under the fruitful providence of God. And we can, we can evaluate that verdict uh, at the end of the psalm, but the psalm says there's a blessed person and here's what he's like. He doesn't listen to bad advice. He doesn't follow bad paths. He doesn't do foolish things or identify with foolish people. Rather, he listens to God's word. He chews on God's word and he listens to it for a lifetime of wisdom. Now then, there's an image. The wise man, the blessed man, he is like a tree planted alongside streams of water, which gives its fruit in its time. Here's an image, an illustration, a picture of what the blessed man is like. And you will notice what's innate to poetry, which is the use of images to convey an idea to us. Now, I trust that many of you, maybe in your life, have not uh, planted trees or even raised them to maturity. But even, even living in a city like we do, we still can appreciate what it's like to be, see a healthy plant and recognize it. We're not an agricultural people very much anymore. Uh, maybe depending on your upbringing in certain parts of Indiana, you might have better, better or worse agricultural experience. But the idea of a tree planted over the course of time near sources of nutrients, right by the water that gives it life, in good soil, which over time bears fruit, and not just any fruit, good fruit. It, it yields its fruit in its season, meaning it yields ripe, mature, refreshing fruit. We can appreciate what that's like, even if we've never done that kind of thing. It's an image. It's a picture. Now I might ask the question that I think the psalmist is trying to address by this point. Is freedom, which this tree in some sense does not have, is that actually better or worse than being constrained by what God's word says? Consider the tree and as we've read at the beginning, or as, as Brian read for us, verse 4, uh, the chaff, which is not planted beside streams and rather is driven away by the wind. Maybe if I could ask it in a more culturally relevant way. Isn't it so constraining to have to listen to what God says and obey his voice because he puts all these barriers up for how you ought to live? 
Isn't that constraining? Isn't that confining? Doesn't that lead to a loss of freedom and therefore a loss of enjoyment? Well, the tree doesn't actually want to be free without any qualifications. The tree wants to be planted in a firm foundation where it can get good nutrients over the course of its life. A, a tree that is free and therefore has no roots anywhere and no source of water and no source of nutrients will die in a matter of time. So it is with a person who is not planted in God's word. The freedom that is offered, the allure of that freedom and choice is actually not all that life-giving. A tree that is uh, detached from water, detached from nutrients, will eventually dry out, be cut to pieces, and blown away like chaff. This is the question of freedom versus what God tells us to do in his word. In our world today, freedom is the ultimate goal of the human. Being autonomous, being able to tell yourself what to do, make decisions every morning for yourself. That works well if you're talking to a bunch of 14-year-olds who can't imagine a better world than being utterly free from the constraints of parents, from the constraints of society, all of those pressures. Wouldn't it be great to be free from all this? And yet, freedom it comes with a huge cost. It comes with the cost of fruitfulness. It comes with a, a massive cost in terms of how successful and enjoyable your life will be. Try having a successful relationship with anyone, friendship, marriage, or otherwise, where you insist that you be totally free at all times to do whatever you want to do without any accountability to another person. And you'll recognize very quickly, you might have that freedom, but it will come at the cost of any kind of intimate relationship. Freedom is not all it's cracked up to be. And the psalmist knows that, which is why he says, hey, consider a tree that might be free. Consider a tree that's not planted. It's not a good tree. So he states it positively. He says, the one who listens to God's law and meditates on it, what's he like? He's like a tree with its roots planted deep in a life-giving source that gives it fruitful maturity and blessed yield year after year. So Christian, if you've ever wondered, is there something better out there for me to listen to? Uh, you can hear the words here of the psalmist where he says, that would be like a tree by life-giving sources of water and nutrients saying, I wonder if I could uproot and go elsewhere. Wouldn't it be better to be free? God's word is fruitful. It is in some sense freeing. It produces growth within us. It gives us what we actually want in life, enjoyment, satisfaction, and freedom, the kind of freedom that is able to be blown away and unplanted anywhere, the kind of freedom the world offers actually yields to a negative outcome. It yields to no outcome at all. And so here the psalm comes to us and says, freedom's not all it's cracked up to be. Plantedness and rootedness in God's word is what it's cracked up to be, though. Just as a tree needs water to bear fruit, so the Christian needs God's word, his spirit, his people to yield fruit in their life. In all that this man does, he succeeds. He prospers. He has many blessings upon him as a result. Now, you might immediately say, well, I know of Christians, and I could tell you stories of Christians who, they're not really prospering. They're struggling with infertility or cancer, or a genetic disease that has beset them over time, or they're struggling with loneliness, or fill in the blank. Christians don't always prosper, do they? 
And actually, I know plenty of people who don't follow after God and, and don't listen to his advice, not at all, who they're actually doing quite well. They seem for perfectly happy, like life's good. They've got good friends. They've got a good job. They've got a good community going. Can the psalm really say that the wicked are not like the blessed man and that the blessed man always succeeds? In part, it's a matter of perspective. When we're talking about the delight of the blessed man and the prosperity of the blessed man, we're talking about it on a scale of delighting in God, enjoying him, enjoying intimacy with him, listening to his word. That prosperity, that success, is only known to a Christian. You can't describe that kind of happiness to someone who's never tasted it before. And so when the world comes and says, a a Christian cannot say that I'm unhappy because I'm perfectly happy with my life. I have everything going well for me at this moment. We would have to say it's because they don't even know what we're talking about quite rightly. John Stott quotes it this way. When, When the world says that they are perfectly happy, he says this, they have no criteria by which to judge what happiness is. Tadpoles are perfectly happy to be tadpoles and caterpillars are perfectly happy to be caterpillars because they have not even the slightest concept of the superior delight of being a frog or of being a butterfly. Part of the delight that we're talking about, part of the enjoyment that we're talking about is something that's only accessible to those who follow God, follow his word, and know what it is to taste and see his goodness. The blessed man delights in all these things and thus he prospers and succeeds even though his crops may fail for the year, even though his friendship might be in the dumps because he followed God and not man, even though he lost his job because of his stand that he took for a biblical worldview, the the righteous man, the blessed man, is always doing well, in season and out of season. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are... And you're like, those are not good categories to be associated with, except that... In the final analysis, when God's kingdom descends upon this world, those are the kind of people who will have never regretted any of the choices they made. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of perspective. The wicked are are unlike this. They're not established in that way. They are like chaff, which the the wind drives to and fro. So the wicked are different from the righteous. And here we have the two paths given to us in Psalm 1, the way of the righteous, the blessed way, and the way of the wicked, the uh, unblessed way. The way that goes without God's blessing and actually against God and against his blessing. We might say with his curse. The wicked's way may appear to lead to happiness, but it is like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, if you're sitting here thinking the Bible uh, doesn't even wrestle with the fact that the wicked seem to do well in this life, let me just point you to a couple verses that show the Bible actually does wrestle with the fact the wicked seem to do well in this life. If you'll turn with me to Jeremiah uh, chapter 12. You remember the backstory of Jeremiah? He's a prophet to the Hebrews. And he writes at a time when Israel is not doing super well. That's a summary for them. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Jeremiah writes these words. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. 
And yet I would plead my case before you, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous seem to thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and they produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. But you, O Lord, know me. You see me. Test my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for the day of slaughter. What Jeremiah is wrestling with here is the fact that in this life, it is, it is very possible that from our perspective and our vantage point, it will look like people who don't follow God will actually have a pretty good life. But the evaluation of Psalm 1 isn't a, an evaluation for this life alone. It is in part a commentary on the enjoyment we can have in this life with God, but ultimately the evaluation of Psalm 1 comes in verses 5 and 6, the judgment of God. When we see that the reason the wicked are blown away is not because other people drive them out of town, but because God does. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will not succeed. They will perish. They will be put away from him. The way of the wicked comes to nothing, because when when God comes in his judgment, he actually makes all things right. He sets the, the good on one side, and the wicked who rebelled against him on the other. He separates the wheat from the chaff. He, he divides the world into one of two camps. Those who are blessed, who follow his word, who obey it, who delight in it, and those who are rebellious against it. So it is in the final analysis of all of our history, all of time, that we can rightly say that this psalm comments truly. Uh, if you fast forward uh, 10,000 years from now, and the Lord has returned, and, and we, have, we have been living in harmony with him, uh, worshiping, uh, glorifying his name, we will not look back on our lives today as Christians and say, well, I wonder if I should have listened to the people who were telling me not to follow God. In the final analysis, we will say this was hands down the best way to live. Because all of the pain we experience in this life, as Paul says, is not even worth being compared to the eternal weight of glory. In the final analysis, the righteous stand and the wicked don't. So if you're wondering if people who are wicked in this world will, will, will face the judgment for what they have done. Yeah, Adolf Hitler was the ruler of Germany. He did pretty well for himself, for a guy who we like to judge a lot from our vantage point. And if you were looking from his vantage point, you know, aside from the fact that he ends up dying at an early age, he, he does pretty well. He rules a whole nation. He leads military conquests. And during the time of his life, he has a massively inflated reputation among those who follow him. We would say that looks a lot like worldly success, except for the fact that in the final analysis from our vantage point, even not even 100 years removed from that point, we can say, what a fool doing all that he did, behaving the way he did. He was acting foolishly by doing all those things. If only he could have seen the bigger picture. And, and yet... That's exactly what God's word says here. In, in the final analysis, from the bigger picture, from the broader lens, the righteous prosper and the wicked don't. Jeremiah's complaint in Jeremiah 12 actually acknowledges the fact that the wicked do prosper somewhat temporarily in this life, but in the final analysis, God actually does uproot them and does strip them away from all that they ever had. And then this takes us to the kind of conclusion of the psalm, the evaluation of it. Uh, which is not just that uh, these people are judged, but actually they're judged by whether they know God or whether they don't know God. Or rather, they're judged by whether God knows them or whether God doesn't know them. Now, that does not mean that God is not cognizantly aware that they exist. 
He created them after all. The point here in verse 6 is uh, that the Lord, let's say, approves of the way of the righteous. He knows it. He has set it down himself. He has guided it. These are people who walk according to his way. And the Lord knows it. He abides by it. He blesses it. This is to be contrasted with the way of the wicked, which is not known by the Lord, and thus it does not succeed. Ultimately, the arbiter of whether the path was good or bad is uh, in relation to how it related to God. Uh, The blessed man listens to God, does not listen to the counsel of the world, and thus succeeds because he follows in the step of what God says. Now, if you're asking what does it look like to follow in the steps of the Lord, uh, part of understanding what that means is knowing what his word even says. You can't obey his voice if you don't know what he's saying. So part of what it means is we have to be like the man here who meditates daily and nightly upon God's word. As believers, we should be people who are marked by our insistence to be obsessed with God's word. That does not mean that if you don't read the Bible seven days a week that you're somehow a sinner destined for hell. But what it it does mean is that we should seek to hear his voice over every other voice in our lives and to prioritize his voice over every other voice in our lives. And ultimately, what that might look like is daily reading of his word if we have access to it or daily hearing of his word or the daily meditation on what his word says. The, The point is, this is not just something we do out of obedience. It's something we do out of joy. This is something that marks the righteous person. It marks the one who's going to have a good life. Good understood in light of all of God's word. And what it requires us to acknowledge as believers is that we often fall short of delighting in God's word at every step. And that's okay. Because the blessed man is not someone who is a perfect man. Uh, It's simply telling us the pathway on which we ought to walk in which God shows favor to us. And the the broader array of scripture, particularly the gospels, tell us about the one man who perfectly obeys God's law, such that perfect obedience is not required of us. Jesus, who does what we could not do by perfectly being righteous, by perfectly obeying God, and then stands in our place, actually deals with the fact that even as we strive to obey all of what Psalm 1 says, we can't. We fall short of the standard. And it's not that God is going to like tip the scales and say, well, if, you're, if you've been more obedient to me than disobedient, then you're in. The, the point is, Psalm 1 identifies the kind of person who actually has their hope in what God's word says. And what that would mean for someone who was a, a, a Hebrew is that Psalm 1 would, would describe the person who actually trusted that their sacrifices weren't enough, that they were hoping for God's deliverance from their sins. If, if someone listens to God's word enough to take its counsel over other counsels, they're going to be the kind of person who says, oh, I am actually short of God's righteousness, and I need a deliverer. I need a savior. The person marked in Psalm 1 is the kind of person whose totality of their life attests to the fact that they are counting on God's righteousness and not their own. They're dependent on his word, and his word says to them as they meditate on it, how short you fall of my glory, how desperately in need you are of my salvation. And the faithful Jews, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, would, would hear that anticipation and with great joy receive the Messiah who was to come for them. And so it is with, with us as believers. We receive with joy Christ because Psalm 1 tells us that we ought to delight in all of God's word, including the parts that tell us we fall short of his glory and we are in need of his salvation. And in some sense, that plans us for an eternity. 
It is the firm foundation, the rock upon which we stand, the, the glory to which we are anticipating our future. Uh, that hope, that resting place, that truth is, is the sum and total life of fruitfulness. Actually, Jesus picks up the language of fruitfulness where he says in, in the New Testament several times, uh, you are to bear fruit in keeping with, with me, keeping with repentance. He actually gives us his Holy Spirit so that we are to bear fruit uh, of repentance, fruits of uh, the Spirit for one another. The bearing of fruit is a, is a picture in Scripture that describes uh, one who is marked by obedience to God's word and thus the outworkings of that. And Psalm 1 identifies this for us. And there's one more piece that is worth addressing in Psalm 1. This is kind of that uh, final analysis. In the end, the righteous stand and the wicked do not. But there's one guarantee that the blessed has along the way. And that is that, it's, that their leaf does not wither. This is in verse 3. It yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. This is not, to quote uh, a commentator, this is not a guarantee that you will be perfectly fruitful for your whole life. No, no wavering, right? Trees are seasonal. They bear fruit sometimes. Sometimes they go into hibernation. But what it is, it's a promise that those who are planted in this way, they might not be eternally fruitful, evergreen trees, but they will have freedom from the crippling damage of drought, meaning they're, they're trees that are going to survive. They might go dormant for a winter, but eventually they will yield fruit again. Uh, that, is, that is not true of those who bear fruit temporarily but are not firmly rooted in God's word. Actually, in Jeremiah 17, a couple chapters after the one we looked at, Jeremiah analyzes Israel and actually almost verbatim echoes the language of Psalm 1 when he compares Israel to a, a drought-stricken tree which is fruitless, dry, barren. And as Christians, this is part of our hope, is not that we will permanently bear fruit with great consistency every single day, but that we have the hope of never being quenched, never being cut off, never being crippled. It is the promise of keeping that God gives to his people who abide by his word. So what Psalm 1 does for us is it shows us two ways to life, two ways to live, and it gives us an evaluation for those ways. But it doesn't deal with all the questions we might have, but what it does is it shows us a picture, an illustration of, is the way of the blessed worth it? And then the question is, what voice do you listen to? If you go away from here, if you go to uh, your workplace, your friends, if you go to someone who doesn't follow God or his word, ask them the question, should I obey God's word or not? And what do you think about someone who follows after what God says? Uh, in today's world, you'll get a quick answer, something to the effect of, no, that's foolish, that's crazy, that's the dark ages, all kinds of things like that. That's one kind of counsel. What Psalm 1 offers is a different kind of counsel. They, Psalm 1 would say, actually, the one who follows after God's word, that's the, that's the great life. That's a blessed life. That's a, a well-lived life. And then the question is, who do you listen to? What counsel do you take? Psalm 1 serves as an introduction to the entire rest of the Psalter. And in some sense, it introduces us to much of the themes that the Psalms will contain. But ultimately, it sets us on a path as we read the rest of the Psalms. And that path is this. Are we going to listen to what God's word says and trust it and walk in it? Or are we going to evaluate it by means of higher counsel? That's the question we all have to wrestle with when we read scripture, is it not? 
And what Psalm 1 puts forward is, yes, it is worth it. And I can tell you, as a believer, absolutely it is worth it. And ask any Christian here, and they would say, absolutely, it is worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is here contained in even only six verses, and yet contains a wealth of knowledge for us. We trust that despite our weakness, our inability to conform perfectly to all that you require, you are a gracious God who walks in step with us and who has actually taken care of every one of our infirmities, every one of our weaknesses. You are our hope. You are our delight. You are the one to whom we give praise. And you are the one who establishes your people for eternity. We thank you for these truths, and we praise this all in your name. Amen.